This is ACM Bytecast, a podcast series from the Association for Computing Machinery, the world's largest education and scientific computing society. We talk to researchers, practitioners, and innovators who are at the intersection of computing research and practice. They share their experiences, the lessons they've learned, and their visions for the future of computing. I am your host, Rashmi Mohan. The world of technology does not often lend itself easily to being associated with art, except when it comes to computer graphics. This niche area aided us in bringing our images to life on the screen, progressing to giving us immersive and enriching experiences that transform the manner in which we interact with the digital and real world. Our guest today is a pioneer in the world of computer graphics. Neil Trevet is the Vice President of Developer Ecosystems at NVIDIA and the President of the Kronos Group, a non-profit consortium publishing open standards in a variety of areas related to computer graphics. He has worked tirelessly to bring about standardization in the graphics world, giving developers the ability to extend and expand the capabilities of their visual systems. His work involves bringing interactive 3D graphics to the web, creation of the GLTF format for 3D assets, and most recently, founding of the Metaverse Standards Forum. Neil, welcome to ACM Bytecast. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Neil, I'd love to start with the question that I ask of all my guests. Uh, If you could please introduce yourself and talk about what you currently do, as well as give us some insight into what drew you into the field of computer science. Sure. Well, as you've kind of hinted in your introduction, I currently have three jobs (laughs) right now so that are related to, I think, the the topic of uh, graphics and standardization. My my day job, as you mentioned, is at NVIDIA. I've been at NVIDIA close to 16 years now, and I work at NVIDIA to try to help developers make good use of GPUs for for graphics and, and compute. But throughout my career, I found myself getting increasingly involved with standardization. Again, as you mentioned, first with the Kronos Group. I've been the president of the Kronos Group for over 20 years now. And now the Metaverse Standards Forum, which is much, much younger, just a few months old. But I I got into computer science right from the get-go at college. My joint major was in computer science and electronic engineering. And I really loved your introduction because I did get into 3D graphics because I loved and still do. I still love the kind of the visual aspect of graphics. I wish I could be a visual artist, but my hand-to-eye coordination is terrible. (laughs) I love doing photography, but computer graphics, the immediacy and the visual impact was just addictive to me from from the get-go. So I've been fortunate Basically, my whole career has been in 3D graphics. That's wonderful. I mean, to think about it, um, sounds like you have a um, you know an innate interest in art, and to sort of extend that into the world of computer science or blend that with technology um, is quite a unique sort of experience. Not all of us have that sort of blend of our our passion and what our day job brings us. So I'm really happy to hear that. So. Uh, what was that journey like, Neil? So when you, you know, you sort of, most of us go to go to college and do computer science. What really sparked that interest in graphics? Was it mostly the interest in art or was there um, a specific incident or a specific teacher or any sort of, you know, moment that you felt, aha, this is exactly where I need to go? It was 
when I first went to college and started studying computer science, you know, it wasn't clear what you know, specialization uh, I would end up in. I did have this you know, interest in, in the visual arts. But in the end, it was computer graphics. It attracted me in two ways, not just the visual aspect that we, that we talked about. It was also an uh, amazing challenge. And uh, this was back in the early 80s. That's, that's dating me. <laughs> but the gaming, 3D gaming, wasn't yet really pervasive at all. And uh, people were just trying to figure out you know, uh, the very beginnings of computer gaming back in, in the 80s. But lots of interesting challenges were coming up in the kind of the real-time nature of gaming. And the interactions you know, of users with a, a gaming system. Now, all these were cutting edge back in early 1980s. So, the combination of then the visual appeal plus the engineering challenge, both from a hardware point of view and a software point of view. And my honors degree was in computer science and electronic engineering. So, hardware and software. It just seemed like the perfect place to try to bring hardware and software together. That is a great blend and really a wonderful use of your skills as you're developing them, uh, you know, in the courses that you take. You mentioned GPUs or graphics processing units. I know that those were first developed by NVIDIA, um, you know, not too long ago. I mean, in, in 1999, from what I read, and now are just sort of the industry norm. And the applications of GPUs as well has sort of exploded. But I was wondering if you could sort of take us through the evolution of sort of computer graphics um, as you remember it. Yeah, it's it's actually been an interesting journey. It feels a little bit like the Forrest Gump movie, <laughs> where I've just been fortunate to be at some of the, the key evolutionary points in, in 3D graphics, sometimes as an observer, sometimes involved. So almost my first job straight out of college was 3D graphics startup company in the UK, which is where I'm originally from. It was called uh, 3D Labs. And we were quite a few companies working in the new field of 3D graphics. Silicon Graphics here in in Silicon Valley was you know, had the uh, the visibility and and the high end hardware, the workstations that many people I'm sure uh, used back in the day in many types of 3D applications. 3D Labs and other companies we were trying to just build chips much cheaper than workstations to to bring 3D graphics onto PCs. And you know, through the 90s, that was the main focus, helping 3D graphics onto the PC. And now, of course, as you, as you say, you no know, GPUs are, are everywhere. And then at Kronos, I was fortunate to uh, have the opportunity to initiate the OpenGL ES uh, project, which uh, ended up bringing 3D graphics onto mobile phones. So you know, that, and that continues to be used um, you know, by billions of people every day. And then also at Kronos, again, a lucky opportunity to be involved with bringing 3D to the web with the WebGL standard, which is another Kronos standard that leveraged OpenGLES. So you know, all of these generations of platforms incorporating 3D, kind of building on the past work of you know, the previous platforms. And GLTF is used widely on the web as well. That's the 3D asset format uh, that you mentioned. And now, with the Metaverse Standards Forum and the work at NVIDIA and Kronos, the opportunity now is to you know, make sure that 3D with open standards is brought to the new platform, which is you know, going to be the Metaverse. 
It's amazing. I feel like I have to break that answer down into four parts for me to really dig deeper into each one of them. Um, you mentioned OpenGL ES, right? And that was pretty path-breaking at the time when it was created. And to recognize the need um, for you to bring that to mobile devices, to bring OpenGL to mobile devices, was pretty, um, you know, insightful. Um, do you remember, like, how that came about? Yes. And I think, you know, everyone myself included, you know, who's involved with OpenGL ES and owes a big debt of gratitude to the granddaddy of open standards in 3D, which is OpenGL itself. Now, mm -hmm. OpenGL ES was a subset of uh, OpenGL, you know, suited for mobiles. But Silicon Graphics and, you know, Kurt Aikley, who's the CTO there, took the very amazing decision Back when Silicon Graphics was at the height of its you know, market power, they had a proprietary graphics API called Iris GL, and Silicon Graphics took the decision to, to make it into an open standard, which became OpenGL. And they invited the other hardware vendors and other workstation vendors to participate in, in the governance and the management of OpenGL. And you know, that was really the beginning uh, of much of the 3D industry that we know today. It was oh, 30 years ago, almost to the day. OpenGL it was, was 30 years old just a few months ago. And having the opportunity, because I was working at 3D Labs at the time, I was watching and helping and supporting OpenGL as Silicon Graphics were launching it. I watched firsthand the power of an open standard to encourage and enable and foster cooperation between engineers and companies that normally would maybe competitors, seeing a common good and seeing that if everyone was to invest in an open standard, that everyone had a say in evolving, it was good for them. It was good for the whole industry. It was good for the participants helping the standard grow. And that was the start of my journey in open standards, just seeing what a powerful force the right standard at the right time could be for the good of the industry and for the good of the participants helping to build that standard. You know, that lends so well into my next question, because I was going to ask you that. I mean, it's not common. Uh, you know, a lot of us work in industry, um, but not a whole lot of us participate in the manner that you describe in terms of, you know, doing uh, work in, in open standards or contributing to open source. Um, and definitely we'll talk about the distinction between those two. But I would love to sort of also understand, you know, your day job, from what I understand, is to foster and encourage uh, developer ecosystems and tied to the company that you work for. But are there principles from that that you apply at work that also lend themselves well to the work that you do for the Kronos Group. Yes, I think that there's a big there's a big overlap. It's not a hundred percent, obviously. The you know any company that's you know, developing products, you know, particularly in a competitive field like uh, computers and computer graphics, they're going to have a mix of proprietary technologies and you know, proprietary APIs and frameworks to enable their customers to use their products. But very often. That those same companies will want to use open standards too, because open standards can be very effective to help build a business. You know, suddenly a business a business doesn't have to invent everything uh, that is incorporated into their products. They can use open standards to you know, interoperate with other companies to build on the work. 
that standards community has invested in open standards and really get the networking effect. You know, so for 3D graphics on the PC, you know, it's a very obvious win-win-win. You know, if a if a graphics company selling GPUs you know, was forcing people to use a, a proprietary API, in many cases, now that would be a friction point to their business. It's much more enabling for the broader market if you can enable software developers to write once and to run across different hardware vendors, then the hardware vendors get access to more software. The software developers uh, don't have to keep rewriting their code. And in the end, of course, the developer is more end users. Um, the end user you know, isn't so confused. Uh, and so that grows the market overall. So the, the right standards at the right time you know, can be a really um, positive thing for, for building business. But of course, companies need to innovate too. So in a normal company, there's a mix between proprietary and open standards and a smart company you know, will use the right ones at, at the right time to, to maximize their, their market reach. And so my own role at NVIDIA, I, I'm fortunate and NVIDIA lets me you know, invest a lot of time in the open standards in the computer graphics domain. NVIDIA uses many of the standards that the Kronos group does, not all of them. And I'm not pulled in two different directions because NVIDIA using you know, some of the Kronos standards is good for NVIDIA's business. And you know that's where I focus my efforts at NVIDIA, as well as engaging with the larger open standards community. So there's a consistency to my role, whether I'm at NVIDIA or, or Kronos. So and I'm again, I regard myself to be very fortunate to be able to do that and you know, very grateful to NVIDIA uh, to, to let me do that. And you know, hopefully uh, you know, ev- everyone is, is winning. I think, I mean, you're also being very modest in that I feel like you also have these very special skills to be able to spot the opportunities to participate in the open standards and also be able to sort of meaningfully contribute towards the company and the goals that they have. But, you know, one of the things that you mentioned, Neil, which I thought was very interesting, you know, you were talking about the interoperability. This is something I know I was doing research on the work that you've done, and you do talk about this quite frequently. But I was curious, when we talk about companies that want to innovate and want to sort of build something proprietary that they can potentially monetize and help grow their business, how do you recognize when a new standard is needed? So you come up with, a, you know, sort of you germinate an idea, you build it out to a certain amount, it sort of probably builds a little bit of momentum. But is there a tipping point when somebody recognizes and says, you know what, I think we need something more generic here? Yes, that's a, a great question. And it's very easy to try to, you know, once you get into the standards group, it, it's a it's a big mistake to try and standardize everything. <laughs> and you know, you should be very thoughtful about what should be standardized. And, and maybe you know, a certain thing shouldn't be standardized. It should be left proprietary. And timing is important too. So my rule of thumb is first of all, for a can- for a technology to be a candidate for potential standardization, you know, it has to be a proven technology. It can't still be evolving. If it's evolving, you're never going to get people to agree on what it is because it's go- it's changing too fast, and probably um, companies still are getting commercial advantage from I- innovating and you know, coming up with the next revision of whatever that that, that t- particular technology is. 
And so you're not going to get agreement between the various companies as to what should be standardized. We, we kind of like jokingly say, we you know, don't do R&D by standardization committee. <laughs> it's a very, that's a very painful process. Don't do that. <laughs> so the, the right time to do standardization is when the technology is proven and quite pervasive. You know, everyone's kind of doing their own version of it, but you know, the technology is basically understood. And the companies are, are no longer getting commercial advantage from doing that technology in slightly different ways. It's just become a frustration now because everyone's kind of doing something similar, but in frustratingly different ways. And people are beginning to recognize that those differences are holding back the market. And it would be much better if we could standardize, get rid of that friction point, and move on to the next wave of innovation, you know, the next wave of technology where you know, innovation is still uh, g- going apace and you, and you can you know, um, compete with the next wave. You can, with standards, you can consolidate you know, what's, what's proven and accepted throughout the industry. And the, the superpower of standards, because a standard is a specification that lets two things you know, communicate with each other, be it hardware, software, or you know, a, a client and a, a server device, the specification plus conformance tests, so you know everyone is implementing it correctly and reliably. It enables multiple implementations of that technology in an interoperable way, and that lets that technology fan out pervasively across uh, the industry, again, you know, to everyone's benefit. That is pretty amazing. I do have a question, though. So at the time when when maybe a standard is created, like companies recognize that, hey, we really need something that's more sort of, um, you know, uh, generic and uh, something that's standard across, um, you know, the industry. Is there a step there then they're actually sort of, you know, you're also spending time to adhere to that standard. So it's almost like a step back. I don't know if I'm expressing myself well, but it feels like in order to, like I've been moving at a certain pace and building something out, but now we're standardizing it and it might not always be exactly the way I built it out. And so I have to actually spend some time adhering to this more genetic standard. Yeah, that's, it's a good question. I mean, there's, there's a number of, number of aspects to, to, that, to that question. The, yes, I mean, building standards takes time and um, successful standards you know, come into existence are, are successful because enough companies that are going to use those standards care uh, and believe that they're going to benefit and that industry is going to benefit. It does take some resource, um, and it, t- it can take longer to create an open standard with you know, multiple companies agreeing to it than just doing something proprietary you know, quickly and doing it yourself. But that extra time and those conversations to build a standard that's not a that's not a bug that that's that's the whole point that's the it's the feature that you want mm-hmm. building consensus on a standard that everyone can benefit from you know is is the foundation uh for cooperation and uh interoperability so you need you do need a quorum of companies that are going to be willing to put that investment in but once once you've done it though you can begin to benefit in many ways and well, another aspect to your question is it doesn't hold you back. Uh, well, because I often get the question, you know, if if I have to use an open standard, aren't I being brought down to a lowest common denominator? You know, I don't have any mm-hmm. opportunity for differentiation anymore. Yeah, and then for advancing. A well-designed open standard very carefully chooses its level up abstraction. And a well-designed open standard will only de- define how, the minimum you need to interoperate 
you know, if it's an API like Vulkan or WebGL or OpenGL ES, you know, the it's just the calling protocols that are defined in the API, not how you implement that API. So the, the Vulkan a- API, which is the new generation 3D API, uh, doesn't dictate at all how you implement your GPU. So all the GPU vendors you know, that are um, supporting Vulkan uh, on their hardware, they, they're fully enabled to innovate in their GPU architectures however they want, as long as just the final result and you no know, calling protocols of the API are, are honored. You know, they can do all the innovation they, they wish to you know, at the implementation level. So, and the other way, we make sure that open standards don't hold back the industry. Again, it's well-designed um, standards are often extensible. So if you really need some functionality in an API like OpenGL or, or Vulkan, if you want to, and you want to move faster than the group on a particular point, you can do your own vendor extensions to meet your own market and customer needs. And in the end, it actually turns out into a pretty good pipeline. It, it, often the vendors are doing vendor extensions you know, out ahead of the, the specification. Some of them will fail. Some of them were really just very specific to a particular vendor. But very often they prove out the new wave of technology that then gets adopted back into the mainstream open open standard. So a well-designed standards ecosystem will you know, encourage and enable that kind of vendor innovation through extensions. I really like how you describe that and the distinction that you brought to the fore. I think that makes a lot of sense. But this also begs the question of what is the right team to form um, to be able to sort of develop an effective open standards? Like, How do you know that you have the right composition of expertise, whether that is domain related or it is somebody who has who knows how to build standards and knows how to sort of corral the troops, if you will, towards, you know, an effective generation of the standards? So I'm just curious, like, what is that recruitment process like? That's interesting. In my experience, you know, the effective working groups, I mean, of course, you need domain expertise and you need expertise where you know, people have been genuinely implementing uh, the technology that gives you the, the insight to keep the standard, to keep it real. Again, you know, a standard shouldn't be doing R&D. It shouldn't be in inventing new technologies. It should be taking established proven practice and you know, figuring out how to reframe that functionality in a way that everyone can can benefit from. So you need people that have been implementing that technology. You know that that's that they're the folks that are going to have the insight. But the other vital ingredient from our experience is you need the users of the standard to be around the table as you design it to make sure that the requirements and use cases are are based in the real world needs as well. It's very easy. It's an easy trap for a room full of implementers with no users, no developers in the room to go off in a direction that no developer is going to find attractive. And, you know, you end up with a a standard that is, doesn't meet the needs of the developer community is for an API. Again, like OpenGL or Vulkan, it's the developer community are your customers. (laughs) And so you need to make sure you're, you know, you're talking to your users, your customers, as you design the standard, and if you if you don't have enough of your customers or end users in the room, you know that is de- a definite warning sign. Almost all 
successful standards I've seen have had a good mix of implementers and and users of, of the standard. That is such a crucial point. You're absolutely right, right? Because I think it's like like with any business, I think listening to your customers and, and getting regular feedback is probably the best way to sort of guarantee some, you know, adoption as well as success. But, you know, talking about users, like, you know, obviously one of the largest, I would say, user base for some of the standards that you've defined are, from what I understand, are game developers, right? And from what I hear, the market is, is so competitive that... I wonder, do people want to sort of lock in their audience and build sort of proprietary experiences? How have you, I, I don't know if that, you know, specific set of users is something interesting that you have might have experienced with the game developers. Yeah, it's interesting. And I think it's a fundamental property of the universe <laughs> that you're always going to get a spectrum of, you know, in whatever the field of human endeavor is, including you know, the computer graphics market or you know the computer market in general you know any company can decide do they want to use proprietary interfaces and technologies and try to you know lock in their customers or do they want to be open it's a spectrum and it, and it's not a criticism either you know that some very successful companies you know their business model is you know trying to use proprietary technology wherever they can and you know, and they if they do that successfully, it can be a very successful business. And but of course, there are many other companies who want to use the networking effect of open standards, not having to do everything themselves, and through the networking effect, potentially get access to you know, larger customer base and larger markets. And there will always be different companies all the way along that spectrum, different points, people trying out different business models. And I think that goes that, that that applies both to the platform vendors and the, the technology vendors, you know, the GPU vendors, and also you know people selling applications too. The same the same spectrum applies at each level in the food chain. Some applications will be much more open, others will be more closed. It's all good. Uh, and it's 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 the way of the world that Darwinian mechanics will kick in and will you know select out the successful business models you know, all the way across that spectrum. But it's the it's the role of the standards community towards the open end of that spectrum to give the companies that want to use open standards to get that networking effect to give them the choice of you know, effective and you know, well designed open standards you know, so they can live on that end of the spectrum you know, if if their business model needs it. Yeah, that's great to hear. I mean, there's there's room for everybody. And, and I think it sort of depends on how you want to drive sort of your business forward, right? Whether it is with the goal of being interoperable. And if that's what's sort of really going to bring you the momentum, then it makes more sense for you to align with a standard that is industry-wide. ACM Bytecast is available on Apple Podcasts, the Google Podcast, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite platform. So one of the other areas, um, Neil, that I, I heard you talk about or write about quite a bit is pervasive 3D in e-commerce, right? And e-commerce is obviously something very close to my heart. I do a lot of online shopping, uh, but I was wondering... <laughs> 
I was wondering if you could maybe walk us through, you know, what do you envision as as 3D in e-commerce and how do you think it is changing the world as we know it? I know the GLTF file format is something that, um, you know, you've been very integral to sort of developing and now is being adopted pretty widely. So I was just wondering maybe if you could give us like an insight into that journey and what you think, just maybe a little bit of a, a future vision into that. It's interesting. Now, GLTF has an interesting genesis story about because we started work on GLTF you know, uh, over 10 years ago now. And we were looking at all of the other media types, you know, images and video and audio. And you know, o- over time, they were all getting their, what I call their social media moment. <laughs> and it comes from having a compressed, pervasively available file format. So, you know, MP3s arrive, and I'm gonna I'm gonna show my age again now. No, and Napster. <laughs> is, I recognize it, so you're all good. <laughs> okay, awesome. no, and now it's Spotify, right? All and the, the rest. The JPEG arrives, and and you get you know, Instagram and, and and Facebook, and then videos arrive, and you get you know, YouTube and TikTok, and they all. But there hasn't been that social media opportunity for 3D. And we back in the, the beginning of GLTF, we thought, well, perhaps one of the missing pieces is you no know, 3D doesn't have the equivalent to JPEG. You know, there's not a, a file format that has been specifically designed to be easy for to process and display, you know, even on a on a mobile phone, just like pictures and videos, and is pervasively available. And that was the, the reason we started to design GLTF. And we've been fortunate that you know the, the industry has widely adopted GLTF. And so now GLTF is is fulfilling that that role of being a file format that, that's very widely adopted and supported in on many platforms, on the web, on in native applications, you know, many tools generate GLTF, many applications absorb GLTF. So it's it's been an interesting and fun, fun journey. The 3D commerce is is one of the first real beachhead applications that I think will bring 3D into a wider audience because the commerce that's in general and the online commerce you know, is a huge business. And there, there are many studies out there that show that if you can uh, display a 3D model of an object that you know, you're offering for sale, you do get more customer engagement and customer satisfaction and less returns um, than just a JPEG. It's actually quite a big margin too. You know, it's very interesting you know, because you can see more details. You can interact with the, the model. It becomes quite a compelling um, business booster for you know, the online commerce folks. So you know, there's a lot of sustained interest to figure out, okay, we know 3D is effective selling tool and we want to use it. But then they discover it's very difficult to have millions of products f- being generated by you know, hundreds of different tools flowing through hundreds of different companies with storefronts, with different engines that are being used to display these 3D objects. It becomes a real logistical nightmare if you don't have not just the asset formats, but you have a broad understanding of how to create assets that will run on a mobile phone, and how can you create them and 
how can you have engines on very different platforms like a web on a PC or you know, a browser on a mobile phone or you know, an ad platform like you know, Facebook or Snap, all using different engines. The, the 3D models, even if they use a common format like GLTF, they end up looking completely different. So you know, your, your purple couch, which of course you know, everyone wants a purple couch, <laughs> and looking more red than it should do, and it will get returned. And that, you know, that's a real pain for, for, for everybody. And so 3D commerce has been this really motivated set of uh, companies wanting to use 3D, helping the 3D industry really figure out how to get consistency in tooling and guidelines on how to use the tools, what are good guidelines for building content that can be deployed everywhere. And now we're on to the stage of making sure that all of the engines, you know, like a web browser engine or you know, a native app on, on a mobile phone, they all display the those uh, 3D assets consistently you know, to the end user. And that's essential for 3D commerce. But of course, it's essential for everyone else in the 3D industry who you know, who wants to use 3D you know, in this way to communicate real-world information. Um, so you know, 3D commerce are a precursor to... You know, they're solving many of the problems that are going to be very relevant to many more people across the industry, including the metaverse, because you know, the metaverse is going to want to consistently and accurately display 3D assets and avatars on um, multiple metaverse platforms. So, you know, it's the 3D commerce is you know, uh, really a precursor to solving these problems for the wider wider industry. It's so exciting to hear that. Just, I mean, basically the marriage mm-hmm. of a use case with such a wonderful sort of way to apply it and the genuine interest that comes from that sort of, you know, uh, that industry as well must be so exciting because like you said, there is a lot of passion. There's a real need to solve the problem not just for themselves, but also for, you know, those to come after them. Um, So it's really actually very heartening to hear that. One of the other things that I noticed, um, Neil, is, you know, I actually went back and did research on some of you, really your talks from many, many years ago. And one thing I noticed very pleasantly surprised and impressed was you really started to include a very diverse set of voices while building your standards committee. So I know you've presented in China and in various other sort of international destinations. What was the insight that drove that? And what do you feel bringing those sort of really, you know, different voices and just ideas from around the world um, brought in terms of value to, you know, building these committees? Yeah, that's, that's, um, I'm so impressed by the research you've done. (laughs) You know more about me than I do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, but no, that's a, we've always wanted to include uh, the international uh, community because an uh, uh, open standard is not truly open unless it's accessible to 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 everyone, as you say, in an inclusive way. No geography should not be uh, a barrier to the use of uh, open standards. And over the years, as, as you've as you've mentioned, you no, know, we've uh, figured out ways of reaching out into the various geographies. And you know, investing in kind of the long-term relationships that's necessary for you know the 3D industry in Japan or China or other geographies to to really trust. That's like any business, right? People do business with people, not not companies. In the end, and you know, you need to need to show up and continue to show up 
in those other geographies to build the recognition and and the trust that you know, they can companies in these diverse geographies you know can, can trust the standards that you know this this organization that they've just met <laughs> um, is 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 producing and you know I think we have managed to, to build that trust in in many different geographies and of course the reward is many of the innovations and you know the energy and the input into the standards that we're building and now of course coming from those uh, diverse geographies and you know everyone then um, you know gains you know, I- including the folks here in in the US so you now it, again it's another win 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 the biggest problem we kind of kind of joke about it but actually it is a real problem the biggest problem it, it introduces is that the the earth is round <laughs> and therefore it makes it impossible to find a good meeting time that everyone, <laughs> that everyone can join in because if you have participants from Europe, US and Asia of course there is no time where someone isn't having to be up and on a Zoom call at two o'clock in the morning, which is you no, know, that's not that's not fair either. So you know that, that we struggle with that one continuously. The standards at the Metaverse Standards Forum for the larger meetings, where, where we do have a lot of um, international participation, particularly, uh, we actually we've begun holding two sessions of the same meeting. We hold it once in the morning Pacific time and once in the evening Pacific time with the same agenda, and so you know people from different time zones can uh, participate in a real way. That's brilliant. That's a really good way to do it. And I agree. I mean, I think it's a small price to pay to bring in that value of both cultural as well as uh, unique unique challenges that each of these either geographies or working groups face to bring it in to add sort of, you know, value and help you think in dimensions that you might not otherwise have thought about. So that's great. Um, but yeah, we've spoken about the metaverse a couple of times, uh, Neil, but that's about as exciting and novel as it gets. So I would love to hear more about, you know, Maybe one, you know, just your interpretation of the metaverse uh, for our listeners. And then also, what is unique in defining standards for the metaverse? Yes. So it's very interesting when people hear about the metaverse standards forum, they go, oh, you're standardizing the metaverse. So so what is the metaverse? (laughs) That's normally the first question. And the answer is we don't know. We don't know what the metaverse is going to be in 10, 5, 10, 20 years' time. We're at the beginning of a very chaotic, in a good sense, you know, a very dynamic period of innovation where it's going to be very hard to know what comes next. I, I, the kind of a, analogy I use is you know, the very first web browser, the Netscape browser, you know, in 1994, you know, if you sat someone down you know, in front of the Netscape browser in 1994 and said, what is the, the web going to be in 30 years' time? I guarantee their, their guesses would not be anywhere close to reality <laughs> as to what's, what's happened. It's, it's just impossible to know, right? Because there's so many innovations in unexpected directions. It, you, you can't plan or predict that far ahead. And that is precisely where we are with the metaverse today. So, yes, we, we don't know what it's going to be in 20 years' time. But the metaverse is real. Though I think the excitement in the industry is coming from the fact that, for many people, what it means, what the metaverse means, is we're bringing together multiple disruptive technologies in new ways, and that is going to create opportunity and disruption at 
at a pretty big scale. So the metaverse often is described as you know, the, the 3D evolution of the web. And I think, you know, at least in part, that's true, yes. But I think it's it's the connectivity of the web with the immersiveness of spatial computing that includes photorealistic graphics. You know, so the GPUs are in there and using the GPUs for simulation and compute. There's XR, you know, augmented and virtual reality. Though you're not going to be forced to use those. It's going to be an option. And some of the most immersive experiences probably will use them. But lots of, I think most people access metaverse through their phones uh, still. And the, the magic pixie dust, though, uh, which is truly disruptive, is you know, AI and machine learning. So that is letting uh, our machines, our, uh, our computers, do things that just seem magical even just a year or two ago, natural user interfaces, language processing and understanding, natural user interface uh, through gesture and body tracking, scanning objects, scanning your environment and understanding them semantically, really uplifting the tools. So people, normal, everyday people, my mom soon will be able to build and scan 3D models because the AI will be able to help and assist the creation, you know, um, text to VR. <laughs> and it's all happening. You know, that innovation is happening right right now as we speak, you know, almost a weekly basis. There are new innovations on how to d- um, deploy machine learning. And so if you mix all those things up together, you know, interesting stuff is going to happen, you know, and it's going to, there is going to be a constant stream of uh, opportunity. How can we standardize it? If we don't know what it's going to be in 20 years, well, actually, it turns out to be quite simple because we know what interoperability problems we have today. If you're going to bring all these technologies to work together, then you need interoperability because you know, interoperability is helping things work together. That's the whole essence of standardization. And so we're finding this wave of interest in 3D standards and XR standards, um, because people are beginning to realize that they're going to be used as a part of this overall metaverse mix. And so, you know, we have a lot of interest in standards. In some cases, we've been working on for decades, you know, and now people are, you know, a new wave of people are interested because they're going to be used in the metaverse. So it's an opportunity for, for everyone, including the standards community. That's, um, you know, it's fascinating the way you describe it. And it's also very exciting to think about it as it sounds like the fact that, you know, um, the common denominator of interoperability has been identified and is being used as a foundation. It just seems like bringing these three or four or, you know, N technologies together will be more successful, if you will, right? Um, it just sounds to me that having it, having the ability for these things to work together is the foundation of how we kind of maybe imagine what the metaverse will be. Um, That's right. That's right. Because if, if we're going to avoid... Um, you know, just having a series of vertical silos, you know, like today. I mean, the closest many people get to the metaverse today are games like, you know, Fortnite and Roblox. You know, they are awesome. And, you know, they have many of the elements that I think people imagine the metaverse to have, you know, user-created content, real-time 3D graphics, social connectedness, you know, connectivity. Um, but they are verticals, right? You, you can't design a, an asset or an avatar in Roblox and take it to um, Fortnite or take it anywhere else. Yeah. And I think that many people's vision of the metaverse is 
it's not just a series of vertical applications. It is a larger platform where your investment in your work and your avatar and your cool Gucci jacket, <laughs> uh, you, you can take it with you, you know, across the different spaces and environments in, in, in the metaverse. And that's, that, that is going to take this whole new level of interoperability. But the important thing to understand about the forum is it's not a standards organization. And that's, that seems counterintuitive because that there are many standards organizations already in the industry doing excellent work. Now, now, Kronos is the one I'm involved with, but it's the World Wide Web Consortium. There's the Open Geospatial Consortium. There are dozens and hundreds more doing or standards organizations today creating standards that are going to be relevant to different parts uh, of the metaverse. The problem that we had was there typically wasn't a, a lot of communication between them. I mean, there were some liaisons. But in general, all these organizations that are finding all this increased level of interest have nowhere to go to coordinate and communicate and to ask the industry what the industry wanted from metaverse standards. And, and, and that is just a very simple idea behind the forum. It's not, a, it's not another standards organization. It's a place for all of the other existing standards organizations to come together to coordinate and to communicate with the wider industry. That's great. Um, I do have a more sort of applied question, if you will, Neil, which is really the way we're describing the metaverse. Are there, are there things like bandwidth considerations, network availability, um, prohibitive costs? Are those being considered also? Like trying to see if metaverse is not something that is only being built for the elite. Oh, I think, yes. That, 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 that's a great question. I, I think Darwinian business mechanics are going to take care of that. The most successful, most at least the most pervasively accessible metaverse experiences, you know, whatever they end up being, whether it's a game or whether it's a digital twin controlling a, a factory or you know, uh, augmented reality glasses navigating you through a strange city, it's going to be more accessible you know, the cheaper it is and the better designed it is to you know, survive on not needing gig gigabit ethernet <laughs> the people that innovate and make their their products and their technologies accessible and widely available probably you know, are going to be the ones that you know stand a chance of getting most adoption and that could lead you know in the right hands to successful business and that's where your darwinian mechanics will, will kick, kick in I mean, you may get high-end products at the, at the at the bleeding edge of innovation. I mean, that's that's a typical pattern in in course in in the technology industry. But you know, I think everyone's vision of the metaverse, if you do this right, you no, know, it will be as pervasive as the mobile web. And now that's really what we want. And you know, um, you know, many many people, of course, around the world can. You know, have access to mobile web technology. We want the metaverse to be as pervasive as that. Yeah, I'm very excited to start the uh, prospect of that. For our final bite, Neil, what are you most excited about in the field of technology or in what the metaverse is to bring over the next five years? It's been an interesting journey being part of this whole metaverse cycle. <laughs> I've learned not to, not to believe the hype, of the metaverse, because you, you know you see market forecasts. You know, I saw one the other day that said the metaverse is going to be a, I think it was thirteen trillion dollars market 
in you know by the end of the decade. I'm going, how can you make that kind of prediction when we don't know what the metaverse is? <laughs> so some people are being carried away. Don't get carried away on the on on the hype. Don't get caught up in the dystopian despair too. I, I you know people say, oh, it's going to be terrible because we're all going to put on our VR masks and we're never going to take them off again and you know, we'll lose all social contact and it's going to be very dystopian. Um, I don't think I have I have faith in human nature. I don't think people want to be disconnected from reality like that. And as I like to say, you can't buy a cup of coffee in the metaverse. The <laughs> 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 thing is real. <laughs> so I, I don't I don't think we'll go to the dystopian extreme either. It, it goes back to what I was saying before. The metaverse though is it's an exciting place to be because it is going to uh, create this constant stream of remarkable commercial opportunities and the combinations of those, the technologies that we were talking about. Um, it, it's it's going to be a, an amazing endeavor for the industry over the next years and, and decades. You know, just like the web has taken you know, 30, 40 years, you know, the, the, the metaverse will too, I think. But if you, if you force me to say, okay, all the technologies that's coming together, and which one is potentially the most disruptive? I think machine learning and AI, if it stays on anything like its current trajectory of innovation, you know, it, things are moving very quickly and um, it, a lot of things are, are going to change. So um, hopefully the metaverse will be a, a good place where we can apply that kind of technology uh, for, for, the, for the good of everyone. Wonderful. I have learned so much through this conversation, uh, Neil. It's been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us at ACM Bytecast. Of course, Rashmi. And thank you. Thank you for the wonderful questions. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Likewise. ACM Bytecast is a production of the Association for Computing Machineries Practitioners Board. To learn more about ACM and its activities, visit acm.org. For more information about this and other episodes, please visit our website at learning.acm.org slash B-Y-T-E-C-A-S-T. That's learning.acm.org slash bytecast.